You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on December 31, 2023, presented by Mr. Leighton Rowe. The son. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihad, Abihad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihad, Elihad the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She would give birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, this is the word of God. Uh, how about we uh, pray again quickly? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we just pray, Heavenly Father, that every word uh, spoken in this message will be to the glory of your name. Uh, we recognize that words are just words that have no power unless you intervene in them. So we just pray uh, this morning that you'll intervene in these words and you'll speak to each and every one of us here today uh, and reveal more of the glory uh, of what we have just celebrated at Christmas, more of the glory uh, of your love in sending Jesus to be born into this world, uh, an incredible truth that we celebrate at this time. Help that, uh, the glory of that shine brightly uh, this morning. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, what has been so clear to see, uh, especially over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, is how secular our country uh, here in Australia has gotten. Uh, what was once a, a very Christian-dominating nation, once upon a time, has now become a nation where Christianity is becoming more and more of a minority uh, every single year. Uh, every single year. And therefore, uh, because of these influences of, of our changing culture, uh, the Christmas holiday that we're celebrating around this time uh, as naturally, as you can see, have become more of a, a secular holiday uh, rather than what it actually is, a Christian holiday. Uh, every single year, the, the true meaning of Christmas is just being drowned out more and more uh, by these secular influences to the, to the point where Christ-centered Christmas songs are just being replaced uh, on the speakers in shopping centers with more secular Christmas songs, such as Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. And therefore, uh, these young people growing up in our modern generation today are just naturally just being less and less educated uh, on what Christmas is truly all about. And therefore, this is causing many in our culture today to co conclude things about Christmas uh, that is just not true. Some think that the Christmas holiday is actually about Santa and not about the birth of Jesus. Others think the birth of Jesus is just a, a made-up fairy tale, a feel-good fictional story for the holidays, while others who actually believe in the birth of Jesus as a real historical event that actually happened still think, however, that this Jesus is just another a, a random important person in history whose birth has absolutely no meaning for them uh, in their lives today. And uh, in fact, there are even some people living here uh, in Israel back here in the first century when this passage was written who thought the same thing. They too believe that this Jesus was just another random important person whose birth has absolutely no meaning for them in their lives. And therefore, what did the Apostle Matthew do back then to correct those people? Well, he wrote his gospel and purposely introduces his opening argument of his gospel with verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew begins his gospel here by showing us Jesus' family tree. Now, when I've uh, read books about preaching in my training, uh, nearly all of them say that one of the most important things to do uh, when writing a sermon uh, is to make sure that your introduction captivates your audience. Therefore, we can sometimes wonder why Matthew would choose to use what seems to be a giant, boring list of names as his introduction to his gospel. However, when we put ourselves into the shoes of a first century Jew, what we see is that Matthew couldn't have captivated his audience any better than he has right here with this genealogy. Purely because it is this genealogy that shows us that the birth of Jesus is not a made-up fairy tale. And that it's not just a, another random birth that has no meaning for any of us today. Now, this genealogy right here shows us that the birth of Jesus was a real historical event that actually happened and that it was all orchestrated and planned by God for a specific purpose that actually affects all of us even today. Therefore, I thought this would be the, the perfect passage for us to be looking at uh, around Christmas time. So let's have a look at the, the first thing that this genealogy proves. It proves that the birth of Jesus was a real historical event. It proves that the birth of Jesus was a real historical event. 
And when we look at a genealogy today in the Bible, our culture usually finds them pretty boring and, and pretty meaningless. However, back here in the, in the first century when this passage was written, uh, genealogies were actually extremely important uh, because it was the way that information was able to be passed on uh, to future generations. After all, they didn't have any internet back then uh, for this information to be digitally passed on. Why was it uh, so important for genealogies to be passed on? Well, because genealogies were needed for many different things. They were needed for, for um, legal proof of family inheritance. Uh, they were needed for legal proof of what tribe a person belonged to, which dictated what their legal rights were. And they were also uh, needed in order to settle disputes uh, over land and property ownership. And therefore, that is why the Jews meticulously documented and updated genealogies every single generation for these important purposes. Uh, in fact, even the, the temple in Jerusalem back then had, a, had this special archive of all detailed genealogies that were accessible to anyone. Uh, therefore, back here in the first century, genealogies were both extremely important and also very easily accessible to anyone as well. So what Matthew is doing here with Jesus' genealogy is he's immediately, in his introduction, hitting us with legal proof that the birth of Jesus was a real event in history. Matthew does not begin his gospel with once upon a time, like how fairy tales begin their stories, or how authors begin their fictional stories, uh, like they do in Star Wars. No, Matthew begins his gospel here with, verse 1 again, the genealogy, Jesus, the Messiah. Genealogies or family trees are legitimate historical documents that are based on real events. So what Matthew is basically saying with just this genealogy here is, take a look at these historical records. Go check them out for yourself. Because this is all public knowledge. This is all easily accessible to anyone. The story of the birth of Jesus is not a scam. It's not a scam. It actually happened. That's the first thing that this genealogy proves. The second thing that this genealogy proves is that the birth of Jesus was a plan. It proves that the birth of Jesus was a plan. Now, humanity today uh, all agree today that the future, the future is uncontrollable and unpredictable for us human beings. This is because we all know that even the smallest events can influence the future in, in a significant way worldwide. Uh, for instance, let's take the, the sinking of the Titanic uh, as an example. Uh, now, the officers who were employed to work on the Titanic back before it sunk uh, were always equipped with binoculars uh, because part of their job was to always look ahead with these binoculars and, and see if there's any oncoming uh, danger ahead. However, when the Titanic set off on the particular day that it sunk, uh, the set of keys for the locker that had the binoculars in them uh, was accidentally left behind. And therefore, that night that the Titanic sunk, the officers were left without these binoculars. Uh, one particular officer, Fred Fleet, who actually survived the sinking of the Titanic, uh, actually told the official inquiry that if they had the binoculars on them that night, then they would have seen the iceberg a whole lot sooner. When asked how much sooner they, uh, they would have seen the iceberg, his response in a public format was this. 
enough to get out of the way. For what we're seeing here is that the difference between whether 1,500 people died or not in the sinking of the Titanic most likely came down to a small set of keys that were left behind. Another example of the influence that a, a small change can have on the future was the, the famous Watergate scandal. You may, may have heard of this. Uh, it was one of the, the biggest political scandals in history that resulted in the axing uh, of the President of the, United, of the United States, Richard Nixon. Uh, this is because the President was part of a cover-up uh, where five individuals were caught breaking in uh, to the offices of the Democratic Party uh, in the middle of the night. And get this. Their plan to break into these offices in the middle of the night was bulletproof. However, the only reason they got caught, the only reason they got caught, was because one of the security guards that was positioned outside of the building in the middle of the night saw a little bit of duct tape on the lock of the back door of the parking lot. Thought it was suspicious enough to go into the offices and check out all the offices. And he was the man who caught them. Therefore, again, the, the, the difference between whether the President of the United States of America stays in office or whether the President gets axed literally came down to a little piece of duct tape that was accidentally left behind on a door. This is why the future for us human beings is just so uncontrollable and so unpredictable. Because even the smallest changes of events, like forgetting a small set of keys or leaving behind a small little bit of duct tape, can have that much influence over the future worldwide. And it is this fact alone that shows us how incredible this genealogy really is. This is because it proves that the events in this genealogy leading up to the birth of Jesus couldn't have been a coincidence. And it also proves that it was all planned predicted and controlled perfectly by God. It, it, it proves that it was God's master plan. So let's have a look into that master plan now in this genealogy uh, by starting off with Abraham, uh, as he is the first name on this list. First one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, the reason why Abraham is the first name on the list here is because of the promise. Uh, in Genesis 12, uh, God made a promise uh, to Abraham uh, that he will make him into a great nation, uh, that nation being the nation of Israel uh, today. Uh, and in addition to this, God also made a promise to Abraham that he will bless the whole world through one of Abraham's descendants, who will eventually be called the Messiah. Later on, when we get to Genesis 49, we read about another prophecy proclaimed about this same Messiah. Uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 says this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. Okay, so this prophecy here is now saying that this Messiah will be a descendant of Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, uh, whose name we also find right here in this genealogy in verse 2. Verse 2, Jacob, the father of Judah. 
But that's not all we find right here uh, in this prophecy. In this prophecy, the reference to a scepter and a ruler's staff tells us that this Messiah will be a king. King? Israel don't have a king at this stage. What, what, a, what a weird prophecy. What we see as we continue to read throughout the Old Testament story is that the Israelites eventually start asking for a king. We want a king, they say in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Therefore, because of this, the Israelites appoint Saul uh, as their first king. And then after Saul, the second king they appoint is King David, whose name we also find right here in this genealogy in verse 6. Verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David. And what we see is that once David is appointed as king, God makes a promise to King David, just like he did with Abraham. And again, it's about this same Messiah King. And in this promise, in this promise, God promises King David two main things. And we're going to read through those two things together uh, up on the screen. Uh, and, and keep in mind, this is really important for our understanding uh, for the rest of our time today. So God uh, promises King David two main things. Number one, God promises that this Messiah will be born into King David's family line. Number two, God promises that only King David's family line will rule as king over this kingdom until this Messiah king comes to rule as king forever. And then, as we keep reading through this story, now what we see is that King David eventually comes to the end of his life. And when he does, the kingship is naturally handed down to his son, Solomon. And then when Solomon comes to the end of his life, the kingship is then handed down to his son, Rehoboam, uh, whose names we also find right here uh, in this genealogy in verse 6b. Verse 6b. David was the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. However, because King Rehoboam did a lot of evil towards the people, it allowed a man named Jeroboam, who's not in David's family line, to rise up and take the whole kingdom away from Rehoboam by force. However, because of the promise that God made to David, God says this in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 13. I will not tear the whole kingdom from Rehoboam, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant. What we see, therefore, what we see is that when Jeroboam tries to take over the whole kingdom from Rehoboam by force, God actually stops that from happening. And the way God stops that from happening is by actively stirring up the hearts of the people in the one tribe of Judah so that they would remain loyal to Rehoboam as their king. God, in his sovereignty and his power, made sure that Rehoboam still got a portion of the kingdom. Why? Verse 13 here. For the sake of his promise to David. The promise to preserve the family line of David on the throne until the Messiah king. Therefore, because of God's protection 
of Rehoboam here, uh, Israel at this stage in history now becomes a country of two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom and David's southern kingdom. And what is really fascinating to see as we keep reading through this story is that over a period of 250 years, the northern kingdom had kings from a total of nine different family lines. Nine different family lines. Purely because there was always come, someone coming in and assassinating uh, the king and his son so that they could become king instead. Uh, family lines sitting on the throne back then were always so vulnerable to extinction back then because of power-hungry people who wanted to be king instead. However, throughout the, the entire existence of the southern kingdom, which, keep in mind, spanned for hundreds and hundreds of years, there was only ever one family line who ruled on the throne of the southern kingdom. David's family line. And from verses 6 to 11 in this genealogy here, we read that list of these people in David's family line who ruled as king over the southern kingdom. Why was there such a difference between the two kingdoms in terms of how many family lines ruled that whole time? Was it, was it just a coincidence that the southern kingdom had only one family line ruling that whole time for hundreds of years? No. God preserved the family line of David on the throne because of the promise that he made to David promised to preserve the family line of David on the throne until the Messiah King comes. Although, throughout those years of God's preservation of the southern kingdom and this family line, there still were actually many threats to the existence of David's family line, in addition to the, what, the example we saw before uh, when he protected uh, Rehoboam. Uh, one other example was when Jehoram, uh, became king of David's southern kingdom, whose, whose name we also find right here in this genealogy uh, in verse uh, 8b. Now, when Jehoram became king uh, over the southern kingdom, uh, he and the people of the southern kingdom were doing so much evil in the sight of God that God's justice demanded that they all be destroyed because of their evil, because of uh, their sins. However, what we see when we, we read that story, what is interesting to see, is that God instead chooses to show mercy to Jehoram, Jehoram's family, and the rest of the southern kingdom. Why does God choose to show mercy to all of them? Well, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 19. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. So what we're seeing here is that God showed mercy to Jehoram and Jehoram's family because of his promise to preserve the family line of David. Another example was the time when Hezekiah was king uh, over David's southern kingdom, whose name we also find right here, in this genealogy uh, in verse 10. Now, when Hezekiah became king, there was actually a time when the Assyrian army camped at the doorsteps uh, of the southern kingdom, threatening to destroy the whole kingdom along with everybody in it. Uh, now, that for those of you who don't know, uh, Assyria were literally, literally the powerhouse of the world back then. 
Uh, the book of Kings just tells us that uh, the Assyrian army had just come from destroying many other large kingdoms all across the world with absolute ease at this stage. Uh, the Assyrian army were, were, were an absolutely unstoppable force uh, back then. Therefore, at this stage, David's southern kingdom looks like it's about to be totally destroyed along with everybody in it. The family line of David is almost certainly going to become extinct at the hands of this dangerous and huge Assyrian army. Then God says this to King Hezekiah. 2 Kings, chapter 19, verse 32 and 34. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. I will defend this city and save it. Why? For my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. God protects King Hezekiah, his family, and the entire southern kingdom because of his promise to preserve the family line of David. How does God protect the southern kingdom from this huge and dangerous and threatening Assyrian army? 2 Kings, chapter 19, verse 35, a couple of verses later. That night, when they were sleeping, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. Wow. And what we see when we continue to read through that story in the Bible is that the king of Assyria then wakes up sees hundreds and thousands of dead bodies in his camp and therefore flees the scene in absolute terror. And just one final example uh, is in 2 Kings chapter 11 when an assassin comes, um, comes in and, and murders the king of the southern kingdom as well as all of his sons, except for one, Joash. Even though Joash's father, and all of Joash's brothers were murdered by this assassin. This young eight-year-old Joash was actually protected from this assassin at the very last moment when God raised up a woman to go into Joash's chambers, take him, and put him into hiding. Our young Joash is then protected for a period of time by a certain amount of people until it was safe enough for him to come back out and be crowned as the rightful king of the southern kingdom by the people. And the preservation of the family line of David sitting on the throne continues from there. And what we see when we read right throughout the Old Testament is that there are just so many stories just like these. So many threats to the survival of David's family line. And yet over and over again, God continues to preserve the family line of David because of the promise that he made. And there's one last thing that I want to quickly mention uh, right now before we get to the climax in verse 16. And it's got to do with verse 12. So let's read that. Verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittil, and so on and so on and so on. So what we see now here in, in verse 12 is that even when many people died, many, many people in from David's southern kingdom, might, might I add, died in this exile to Babylon, and many people died, what we see is that God still, even then, continues to preserve 
this family line, even in the midst of this dangerous, uh, threatening foreign territory that was the exile to Babylon. Just incredible. And then as we continue to follow the names and the rest of this genealogy, uh, we finally come to the climax in verse 16. Verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The promise to Abraham, the prophecy about Judah, the promise to David, the promise to preserve the family line of David on the throne, all written hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, and now all fulfilled perfectly in the birth of Jesus. The Messiah King. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. We, we, we read that passage before. You, Mary, will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never What we're seeing here now here is that Jesus is this promised Messiah King from the family line of David who will rule on the throne of David's kingdom forever in heaven. This story of the birth of Jesus that we uh, have just celebrated at Christmas time was not a random coincidence that happened to fulfill all of these promises and prophecies about the future Messiah King to come. Now, this story of the birth of Jesus here is a plan that was orchestrated by God from before the foundations of this world. We saw before how even the, the smallest events can have that much influence over the future worldwide. Uh, how even uh, 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 forgetting a set of keys or leaving behind a small little bit of tuck tape can have that much influence, that much influence. And that, that is just why it's completely impossible for us mere human beings to make these kinds of promises and prophecies about the future and still see them all fulfilled. It's just impossible for us to do that. But God, he can do that. And he did do that here. Because the future is always in the control of his sovereign hands. God orchestrated and planned every single second every single event throughout this genealogy that led to the planned birth, planned birth of Jesus. You may ask the question, well, why? Why did God go to such lengths for this one person, Jesus, to be born into this world? What's, what's the big deal? Well, the answer is actually in the, in the final verse of our passage today, in verse 21. Verse 21b, because Jesus will save his people from their sins. In the eyes of our God, our creator and our judge, we all are sinners, all of us. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is eternal death, eternal hell for all of us. But God, out of his love and mercy, orchestrated this plan 
his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, to be born into this world, to live a sinless life and to ultimately go to the cross, to take the punishment of hell that our sins deserve on himself, on himself. Also, if you right now repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, you will not perish anymore, but have eternal life in David's kingdom, with Jesus' kingdom forever in heaven. You may think at, at the, this time of Christmas time that the, the story of the birth of Jesus has absolutely no meaning for you in your life today. But all it does. According to God, we are all the sinners, whether we like it or not. And therefore, we all need this Jesus. We needed him to be born and we needed him to go to the cross in order for all of us to be saved. So don't reject him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we um, come before you now. We just thank you so much for your word because it just reveals so much, Old Testament, New Testament, just your sovereignty and your power over, over history. It's impossible to predict the future for us, but seeing all of this, it's just amazing to see uh, how, how much control you have over this world. You were completely sovereign over everything in this world. And we thank you that even though you looked down on this world and all you saw was sin and evil and rebellion and rejection, that you would even think to design a plan to send your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be born into this world, to go to the cross, to take our punishment that we deserved on himself. It's a, a love that we will never comprehend fully until we go to be with you. But right now we just sit back and, and marvel at it. And we thank you so much and we just praise you so much for it. We thank you that at Christmas time we get to, to be reminded of that. We get to be reminded of it every day, but at Christmas time we get to be reminded of that in a, in a more focused way. We thank you so much for that. Help us, as uh, I know that Christmas is over, but help us to continue to be, us to remember the glory of the birth of Jesus uh, as we continue uh, um, our lives over the next few weeks. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.